Hello, welcome to Word and Fit Dead Podcast. I'm your host, Ines Gonzalez del Mazo, and today we're joined by Jalak Jovanputra, founding partner of Future Perfect Ventures, an early-stage venture capital fund that invests in next-generation technology, such as blockchain and machine learning. Jalak is a Penn graduate, and now she's one of the most famous investors in the space. She was named Institutional Investor's Most Powerful Fintech Dealmaker from 2016 to 2018. She received Microsoft VC Trailblazer Award for her early and bold investments in the sector. She was listed among the 100 most influential fintech leaders in 2016 and 2017. And last but not least, she's a strong supporter of women. Hello, Jalak, and welcome. We're very happy to have you as a guest. Well, I'm happy to be here with you. Thanks. To start the conversation, would you tell us about your background and what brought you where you are now? Sure. So I graduated Penn in 1994 as an undergrad with a dual degree in uh, finance from Wharton and communications degree from the Annenberg School. I grew up wanting to be first a ballerina. And once I got injured, I, I was a very serious dancer. And, and my second love wa was writing. And so I'd actually applied to Penn as an English major and thought I was going to be a writer. And once I got to Penn, I was exposed to so many different subject areas that I never really thought much about, including econ and, and finance. And was still very much interested in communications. And, and so I went into investment banking in the media, telco, and tech sector after I graduated um, because I thought that would give me a great background on the business side of the media and telecom industry and also let me work with a lot of really smart people. And this was Wall Street in, in, in the mid-90s. I spent some time in New York and London doing that. And then the uh, Netscape IPO happened. There was a lot of technology activity. And I decided to leave banking and help found a fintech startup in 1997 in New York that distributed financial research online was my kind of first entrepreneurial experience. Loved it, but I missed I missed the deal making. I missed portfolio management um, and decided to go to business school for a year. Uh, went to Kellogg. And then in 99, I moved out to Silicon Valley and started my venture career at Intel Capital. So I've been in venture uh, since 99 through several boom and busts. Um, moved back to New York in the mid-2000s and uh, started a bit Future Perfect Ventures in uh, 2014. Very interesting story. Could you tell us a bit more about Future Perfect Ventures? Sure. So after spending 20 years in, in venture, I still thought that there were some gaps in the venture landscape. One was I'd been back in New York for a while and just saw how the ecosystem in New York and entrepreneurship in New York was was growing. And a lot of it came from, you know, what we saw happening in Silicon Valley, which is serial entrepreneurs, more kind of early stage financing, people willing to take risks on new ideas and new technology. And I started to see that starting to develop in, in New York. And also, as we kind of moved away from the infrastructure building of the internet, a lot of the applications or customers for applications were 
in New York or or there were certainly opportunities to test new applications in, in New York. And Foursquare is one that comes to mind. You know, Rent the Runway is another one. So um, I, I just saw opportunity for an early stage fund in, in New York. I also simultaneously thought that venture needed to think more globally. Uh, it was traditionally a very localized business. And I was born in Kenya. I'm of Indian descent. So I grew up after coming to the United States, going to the emerging markets in the 1980s, um, when, when these were not very developed regions of the world. And I just thought that because there's going to be predominant usage of a lot of this technology outside of the United States, the entrepreneurs in the US needed guidance, needed to like really know what was happening outside of their and a home markets or where they may have founded the businesses. And I thought this global network that I'd built over the years would, would be filling a gap that I saw in the landscape. And, and the third was, you know, every 20 years or so, we, we have a new wave of technology and a new wave of technology usage. So we saw that with the PC in the 70s and 80s. Uh, we saw the internet in the 90s and give rise to new business models uh, from mobile and cloud computing. And I thought we were primed for a next wave that was a lot more peer-to-peer that was taking advantage of the not only increased connectivity we were seeing around the world, the increased computing power in devices, in in our smartphones, in even server farms that were more distributed than before. So so the thesis was really based on on those three areas. And and so it was really about decentralization and distributed connectivity. And we were very early on this decentralization wave. And uh, have seen, you know, huge growth in in the amount of capital interested, as as well as the entrepreneurs building around these themes. Talking about decentralization, how did you identify this wave? Yeah. So as I was thinking about this thesis, and and it came out of my longstanding interest in artificial intelligence and machine learning and all the developments we were seeing in natural language processing. So over the years, I'd looked at computer vision for cameras. I had looked at uh, natural language processing, NLP, for call center, more efficient call center, uh, more effective uh, customer communication in call centers. So I was kind of building on, on something that I saw kind of growing in necessity and reality as, as we saw more processing power. And, and so the machine learning AI was one piece. And then Internet of Things and, and this whole idea of smarter devices. I was looking at how sensors were getting cheaper and, and how more devices were able to be smarter and process more of that computing power. So, so those were two themes I was looking at. And, what, and, and I had heard about Bitcoin and I was fascinated from just, you know, with my economics background and, and monetary theory background, looking at, you know, the, the genesis of it post 2008 and, and, and why, and just seeing that there was, there's so many more governments that, uh, and central banks that were kind of wielding more power post 2008. And I was very intrigued by the concept of Bitcoin. And, and then as I, w- I went to my first Bitcoin conference in 2013, and just, just was sold instantaneously from the 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 technology behind it in terms of this real ability to have kind of peer-to-peer transactions without a central authority or 
you know, being able to create more efficiency without having to authenticate transactions by people. And, and, and it's, 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 it was the efficiency as well as being able to trust, you know, networks that maybe you couldn't trust before. And, and uh, what I brought it back to was my work in the emerging markets and, you know, how does a bank or an investor in, in the United States trust you know, a rural farmer in in Kenya without having had a history of business with them or knowing what their credit history is and all these other things that we've come to rely on in our, you know, financial institutions and kind of every institution. And, you know, I felt like to to really unleash the power uh, and the talent of people worldwide, we needed to have this sort of infrastructure in place. So from a, a monetary standpoint, from a talent standpoint, and just became really, really excited about it. And a lot of people thought I'd gone off the rails when I started talking about, about how excited I was about Bitcoin as well as blockchain technology. But um, it's only continued to kind of prove itself out in the market and, and mature. I mean, we're still in early days, but um, what I find fascinating is the number of really talented, experienced entrepreneurs who are now starting companies in the space. You started to speak about use cases of blockchain in the financial sector, but which ones do you think have a stronger potential in the short run? Yeah, so at the end of the day, uh, I do run a fund and we have uh, limited partners to return capital to. So, you know, as exciting as any new technology may be, it's always looking at, you know, what's feasible in the next five to 10 years. And then as we build upon that in subsequent funds, we certainly look at, you know, longer term propositions. And, And it's also important to partner with entrepreneurs that understand that while the technology may be ready for certain things, uh, user adoption often lags and user adoption is, is you know, uh, on the developer front, on, on the enterprise front, as well as the consumer front. So it was really important to form a thesis a- around what's feasible. And, and so as part of that, when we started the fund in 2014, we focused a lot on the infrastructure build out. So a lot of people were talking about, you know, Bitcoin still being fairly slow in terms of the, of the authentication of transactions. I mean, the, the trade-off was really around the security. And, and so looking at those two things, I mean, we invested in, in, in companies that were building out scalability and, and allowing kind of a higher rate of authentication while still keeping the security or making trade-offs in the security versus the authentication speed. So that was very much at the infrastructure layer. The second layer we really looked at was, and and continues to be, middleware, which is really how do we allow developers to interface with the the core technology in a way where they can build applications easily? And that means, you know, being able to build out, you know, APIs and connectivity into the blockchains that, that are being built out. And then the third is the actual application layer. And, and I'd say that is, that that's still very much developing, but what what I had surmised is that the emerging markets would lead in some of that. And and Bitpesa is an example in our portfolio of a company that we invested in in 2014. So still the very early days of, of Bitcoin and blockchain technology. But the founder had been working in in finance in Africa for a while, and and 
every transaction, um, both within Africa, within countries or between countries in Africa and countries outside of Africa and um, with Africa require a lot of um, authentication time lags. Often the transactions will be verified offshore and then onshore and then move back offshore and back onshore, uh, even if it's within the continent. And, and there's also a huge reliance on the dollar. And that's something we can certainly talk about, which is very relevant in, in the crisis we're seeing right now in the middle of COVID. But the reliance on the dollar kind of created an added layer of, of complexity of another exchange transaction that added costs to any transaction. So even small businesses would sometimes be charged up to 20% of a transaction. And, and BitPesa has brought that 20% down to 3% simply by using Bitcoin blockchain on the back end to, to move in and out of transactions. And, and they do not require that their customers actually have any exposure to Bitcoin. They do the hedging on the back end. And they started off with consumer remittances, but soon found that there was a huge interest amongst multinationals to also use their platform. And then they've seen you know, a lot of growth. And even in this current market environment, uh, continue to grow. You have mentioned COVID, and as of now, end of April 2020, life has been put into a bit of a pause because of that. How do you see the impact of COVID and the potential global recession in the fintech sector and maybe in your portfolio? Yeah, so like, I, I think there there's definitely a month, I'd say, well, it started off right in January where companies that had customers or were interacting with China were, were feeling the first impact. And then we saw it kind of ripple through other, other regions of the world. And there's a, a good month in there where a lot of people were just frozen. You know, it, there's so much uncertainty and, and I'm not saying the uncertainty has been lifted, but it's kind of like a shell shock reaction where everything froze, including the credit markets. Um, and, and, and that's why we saw this, this huge kind of stimulus uh, rescue package passed in the U.S. And, and, and in other countries around the world. As we've seen kind of more money flowing out to the market, we're starting to see where you know, some of the opportunities here are going to be in the short term and longer term. For for example, I mentioned BitPesa. I, I mean, the fact that uh, dollars became very much, you know, in demand during uh, the crisis, liquidity crisis, there was a shortage of dollars. And, and so, you know, companies that did not rely on that or were allowing customers other alternatives to liquidity have done well in that environment. We, we have another company called Current, which is a digital bank, digital only bank, that even before the crisis was seeing a lot of growth. Um, and, and most of their customers uh, have not had a bank account before. And a lot of them are hourly workers, and they're really filling a gap for the unbanked or the underbanked in the United States. And they figured out a way to plug into the 
deposit, the direct deposits that Treasury was providing as, as stimulus in the United States, and were able to have their customers get those stimulus checks as soon as they were released. And, and that's been a big issue for a lot of people who, who are underbanked in the United States. And, and so, you know, I, I feel like the companies that are have really been building uh, kind of uh, systems that are resilient and current had been operational for a while and, you know, had, had, had the ability to scale very quickly to meet customer demand, those are companies that, that are, are doing well. Now, there are other companies that rely, you know, on, on financial services companies as customers, so more on the B2B side. Every enterprise is going through a budget process and looking at their budgets. And, and so, you know, some of those companies have been impacted by kind of having their, their customer relationships on hold or contracts on hold. So, and then that happens every time there, there's a downturn. And I think it, it, that's where it's really important to, I view as an investor, to invest in companies that are relevant and, and kind of must-haves and instead of, you know, the bells and whistles of something that's nice. It's like, is this going to create value for a company even when they're in a cost-cutting environment. And then and then you can look at growth beyond that and what value can add to growth. But right now, companies are in a cost-cutting mode. So I think a lot of the fintech technology that's been created over the last you know, five to 10 years, and really since the last financial crisis, a lot of it is built around creating more efficiencies uh, for customers. And I think those companies will do well. And it's really about making sure that entrepreneurs are resilient and, and can, can kind of weather you know, downturns and, and be nimble enough to navigate like, a new reality that hit very quickly. Following up with your comments on BitPesa and governments stepping up during crisis, what do you think about the future of cryptocurrencies and digital currencies? Yeah, so I very much differentiate between central bank digital currencies and, and a decentralized currencies such as Bitcoin. And to me, those are the opposite extremes, even though they're both taking advantage of the digitization and, and being able to make transfers in, in real time. China has been very vocal about the fact that they've been working on a central bank digital currency for a while. And other countries, including the U.S., ha have uh, floated the idea. And to me, that's really just taking central bank actions and just digitizing them so that they can be implemented in a more real-time way and a more trackable way. And, and you know, one of the things we're certainly seeing with the COVID crisis is this question of privacy versus surveillance. And, you know, finance is, is certainly an example where, you know, we have to see how much visibility these central banks and other entities would have into our individual transactions if they do implement these uh, digital currencies. Something like Bitcoin, while it can also be tracked, there is no one entity that is controlling the price. Uh, it's very much driven by market dynamics, which is why I've actually seen an interest uh, amongst people approaching me in the last couple months. And I'd say especially in the last month, as we've seen some of the central banks um, kind of add uh, to the, the uh, monetary debt and, and sovereign debt that was also 
already very high, that people are interested in, in potentially taking some of their capital and putting it into an asset that is kind of separate from the monetary system. Now, you know, it isn't, hasn't been around long enough to know how it will actually kind of behave, but we've actually seen a lot less volatility in Bitcoin than we, we saw with the recent you know, negative oil and oil crash last week. Uh, if you look at how volatile the equity markets were in the beginning days of the crisis, and I, you know, I think I don't think we're done with that volatility yet. Bitcoin is being viewed very differently now in terms of risk profile vis-a-vis other assets, and and certainly when you look at like low yield or negative interest rates, it certainly changes what people want to invest in. So I I think this is going to be a very interesting time for Bitcoin. I I do think we're going to see central bank digital currencies being implemented that may lead to less reliance on the dollar. And and this may be the last crisis where we've seen that kind of dependence on the dollar. And now, last question. As we have mentioned, you're a Penn alumnus, and there are many Wharton students and other students listening to us right now. Looking back at your career, what would you tell them that you wish you had known when you were in our position? Oh, I'd say Penn is such an amazing place to be. Um, it, it has Wharton, which is you know, it has been one of the preeminent financial universities worldwide, but it also has a great medical school, a great engineering school. I mean, I'm I'm partial to Annenberg and the faculty there, but I think there's so much to take advantage of beyond just the finance classes. And and especially as we see more and more kind of interdisciplinary needs out there in the market, uh, you know, we've really moved away from pure specialization to being able to think and and have knowledge of of different areas. So I would say, you know, don't forget that you're in the middle of this amazing university and take full advantage of of what you're able to in terms of expanding your horizons, uh, you know, beyond just the the business curriculum. Thank you very much, Jalak, for sharing your thoughts and your experience with Wharton Fintech. We wish you the best and we hope to see you soon on campus. Also, thank you to our followers that are listening to us right now. Tune in for more podcasts coming soon. Thank you. And for any students innovating in the areas I've talked about, I'd love to hear from them.